Thank you for listening to the Around the Net Post Tennis Podcast. Please tune in for new episodes every Wednesday and every Sunday. Welcome back, Around the Net Posters, episode number eight of Around the Net Post Tennis Podcast. I'm here with Jacob. A pleasure to have you on again. Thanks for sticking with me through eight episodes. Um, it's a, It's been a ride so far, a lot, a lot of fun. Um, we're, we're transitioning uh, today into the college scene, uh, the college tennis landscape as that kicks off. Well, it's, it's been going on about a week now, but we're sort of ramping up into the big time. Uh, Jacob's our in-house expert in all things college tennis, as he is pretty much expert on all things tennis. First off, how, how's your week going? And then where do you want to start? Yeah, thanks for that. My week has been very good. Got a lot of uh, tennis in this week with better weather. Um, as you said, the season is starting to ramp up for the Division One schools. It's already been going on for kind of a couple weeks now, maybe two or three weeks, depending on the school. Um, but with match play really getting underway this weekend in a big way with the, the ITA kickoff weekend. And then for our team, uh, Getting started a little bit later because we're Division Two, but we should be playing matches here shortly. But uh, I think to start off, we maybe touch on a little bit about some of the matches this weekend because there, there's been some big matches already in college tennis, but this was really the first time that the large majority of teams had, I would say, a really big match and big stuff to play for with the ITA national team indoors. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, we'll, we'll get on to that. I wonder if if there's there's value in you explaining a little bit how college tennis differs to pros you know it's not a it's not a straight you know it's not straight translation the the format is is a little different you know we each team has a lineup of six players you play singles and then three doubles teams so there's another six players you can play both and then it's you know best of seven effectively the doubles the three doubles matches are you know if you win two you win that single point and then each singles match it counts for one point each. So it's best of seven. As soon as one team wins four, it's a clinch. That, that's still the rule, isn't it? For the most part, yeah. Sometimes coaches will agree to play out all of the matches regardless of if it's clinched. But a lot of the times at the Division One level and kind of when you're playing outside of your own conference in your region, you typically play to clinch, as you just described. Yeah, you know, so that, that's a, a different dynamic that it's, you know, you can sometimes be at match point that happened to me once in college and you know we then you clinch and then you don't get to finish the match you don't get the win but yeah different dynamic and you know different different you're not playing just for yourself you're playing for for a team and for a university something to represent being that team format where essentially you're playing at the same time as your teammates you're generally competing for about the same length of time but it always if you're playing a good team, it always comes down to the wire with, you know, maybe one match left on court. Everybody's gathered around cheering for their teammates. Um, really fun atmosphere for almost every match in the, in the college level. Um, and then I guess in terms of rule changes, anything like that, I don't think there's anything big coming in the next near future. As far as I can tell, um, over the last, I guess, five to ten years at this point, They've been kind of chipping away at the length of matches as much as they can without altering the format too much. So most people probably know how you describe like doubles now counts as one point. But about 10 or 15 years ago, it used to count for uh, three points by itself. And then teams would play to a score of, you know, five out of nine matches if you count the three doubles as individual matches. Um, and eventually they shifted that to be 
just two out of three would win you the point. And then eventually they switched it from, at least when we were in college, we used to play a pro set for doubles. So eight games, um, tiebreaker at seven or eight all, depending on what referees would, were saying at the time. But they switched that to just the normal set a few years back. And it goes by pretty quickly now. So Yeah, it's, uh, it's important to note that. I think that's probably the biggest change, too, in the doubles format, at least. You know, it's not best mm-hmm. of three tiebreak sets. It's just one one set shootout. Yeah, um, and, and those go by real quick, as everybody probably knows. Just serve, hold, serve, hold, and then all of a sudden there's a break and the momentum can change instantly in just a couple points. Yeah, and, uh, you know, the season is sort of structured in in three three segments, would you say? You know, the, the, the full semester is, you know, there's there's official competition, but it's limited. It's, you know, it's, you're not really playing for too much, the odd tournament here or there. And then you start, you know, this time of year, they're, they're starting with the indoors, indoor series, which reach, reaches a climax at the the national indoors, which we'll talk about. They just did the qualification for that this this past past week weekend. And then after that, they go to the outdoors, which is, you know, where the big big prizes are, are really played for. And ultimately, the NCAA national championship is, is won and lost. Yeah, no, you, you described it pretty well. I would say that that fall season is, is probably means a little bit more if you are at maybe a power five school in division one, um, you're competing for chances to get into the singles tournament in the fall, like the all American tournament. Um, and then additionally, like if you're in division two or division three or NAIA, all of those also host regional tournaments with um, a national component to it as well. So um, in, in those lower divisions, that's called the ITA super cup where if you win your region and become like the national champion for your division, you go into a, a four-player shootout, which has the winners of the D2, D3, NAIA, and junior college champions. So all the winners of that will play from like a semifinal onwards. And I believe the winner of that like mini draw there gets a place into the Division One All-American tournament, which I think is pretty cool. So it kind of yeah, feeds no. in over the course of the the fall into the spring season. Yeah, I didn't know that actually. That that's interesting. Uh, it, when you explain it, and I, I'm sure the, it, it sounds a lot more complicated than it is. And mm-hmm. being not from America, it, I reckon I didn't really grasp the concept, which is crazy because it's a sport that I was playing mm-hmm. until about junior year. I, the the total the complexity of just a, I guess just the way American college sports are structured too. That you know you play teams and it's not you don't get you know three points for a win like you do in soccer you know you play someone that's ranked and there's a whole algorithm for what that does to your ranking Mm -hmm. and things like that um it's an interesting concept faces some criticism but but ultimately it's worked for you know stood the test of time so you know it's a tried and tested method of you know arranging who's who's the best in the country and you know who who plays for the biggest prize yeah, I would agree with you there. As we as we mentioned, the, the it's called the the kickoff event, which I think is cool. It's probably one of the best in college sports, I'd say, of as a concept for starting the year. The the ITA kickoff weekend, which was I think there was 24 host sites with four teams at each each site, you know, and they play, you know, starts at a semifinal, winner plays winner, loser plays loser, and if you win that draw, that qualifies you for the the ITA national indoors is in New York this year. 
Columbia or Cornell, one, one or the other, but I, I think it's Columbia in, in uh, New York. And, and there, there weren't too many major upsets, I noticed. It looked, you know, the couple of teams lost. Tar Heels, who, who are my team, they're ranked number 16. They did lose to the mm-hmm. unranked Illinois. That was probably the story of the – and they were, they were at home too, unfortunately. Yeah, that, that was about it in terms of upsets. Yeah, and, there, there was um, one of the bigger ones that I, I saw because I, I watched a good bit of the tennis – over the course of the weekend, um, both on ESPN Plus and on YouTube. But I think uh, VCU beat Mississippi State in a really tight 4-3 match. It came down to the the clincher, and the VCU player pulled it out 7-5 in the third to win the match. So that sent them into the the final, but then they ended up losing. It was maybe Arizona or Arizona State, something like that. But that I think Mississippi State was ranked 12 in the country. Jay, how, you know, the rankings right now, you know, they, they release the rankings at the start of the year. Top 25 is <laughs> is what they release. What can we expect by the time the, the season ends for how different those rankings are going to look? How much movement is there typically in there? Yeah, I would say that there's for at least this year in college tennis, I think there's going to be at least four or five really dominant teams, but not completely dominant to the point where it was like if anybody watches college tennis like Florida from a few years back when they were just absolutely destroying everybody throughout the year but even then they did not they didn't win the the NCAA tournament they they fell to a really hot Virginia team who's won back-to-back titles since then but I I think looking kind of at the rankings as they are right now you've got um, I would say Ohio State Virginia South Carolina and Texas are currently the top four. I think of those, you're going to see Virginia, Ohio State, and Texas stay really high at the top. I think South Carolina's that high because they did get a win over Virginia, but both teams were missing at least one starter from their top lineup. So I think that one will still be close, but South Carolina could potentially drop a match or two that bumps them down a little bit in the rankings. But I think kind of the top players or the top teams that are already ranked around the top five, top eight are going to be pretty set there for a good bit of the year. And then there's going to be a lot of moving around between 10 and 25. And I think teams will pop in and out of the rankings once they start. Yeah, no, I agree. I I was looking at some of Ohio State's results and they played, I think, two official matches, three unofficial, Mm -hmm. and they haven't dropped a rubber yet. Yep. Everything's been, been 4-0. They played one out to seven, which was 7-0. So they look they look really good. And it would be uh it's it's tough to pull for the Gamecocks being a Tigers fan, but they have a lot of British guys. A couple of the you know I played with when I was when I was younger. They they're obviously much younger than me, but it's uh it's good to see a British representation at the top of uh, college sport. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's I would say nice for you as as a South Carolina guy. I'm, I'm always happy to see Carolina do well. No, I, I wanted to uh, to talk a little as well. You know, in, in college football, there's, you know, big debates over, you know, the Power Five conferences, which is the strongest conference. And from my looking at the rankings, I would say the SEC is the strongest, then the ACC, then the Big 12. But, you know, that, that can change as you go on. That's purely based on the, you know, starting out top 25 rankings. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do, you, do you generally agree with that or do you think, you know, you'd have it in a different order? I would say that's <clears throat> that's pretty close. I would say the only difference would be I think there's more top caliber teams that are going to come from the ACC or the Pac-12 or the Big 12 versus the SEC. I think the SEC is going to have a lot of deep competition. 
but I can't really say that any of them are going to be a dominant team this year. Like Carolina, obviously ranked at number two, but I think them being at two is kind of like a little higher than they should be potentially. They have a lot of uh, younger guys playing. They do have a couple good returners coming back as well. British guys at the top of the lineup, like you mentioned. Um, I, I placed a lot of value on the on most of their teams being ranked in that top twenty five, like being the right. You know, although there's they obviously have South Carolina, South Carolina, and then there's a drop off. Mm-hmm. I think that having a lot of ranked teams, there there should be some value in that rather than you know having two really ranked teams, but you know no one else being being ranked. Yeah, um, but, I did. Uh, I did forget Tennessee. They're also very good this year. So them in South Carolina, I think, will be the two best. Uh, SEC schools. Georgia is going to have a bit of a fall off compared to last year because they graduated essentially their whole lineup. So they're basically an all new team. Florida is pretty much an all new team as well. So as you said, like they have really good depth, I think, as a conference in the top 25 so far. But I think that some of those teams are kind of going to beat up on each other, similar to what happens every year in college football with SEC teams beating each other. They might end up being eight and four. Maybe they're a little bit better than some of the other teams and other conferences. But I think like this year, especially where we had Alabama, who snuck into the playoffs, and then Georgia, who was really dominant, there, there's really only Missouri after them, I would say, and I guess Ole Miss as the, kind of like the four best teams in college football. But I think we'll see some some dominant performances from other conferences like Virginia from the ACC um, Duke's actually pretty good in the ACC as well this year. Yeah, I, I saw uh, Wake Forest uh, up, up there as well, and, and you you actually have those guys on your schedule, right? Yeah, we do. We've got them, and I think it's an exhibition match for us and probably for them as well. I'm not sure how that would work for them, but we do have them on the schedule in a couple months, I believe. Yeah, the uh, I remember the, the first guy I ever saw play in college. I showed up to a, a tournament at at Wake Forest, and it was uh, the the Tun- Tunisian guy, Mansur, and he basically was pro at the time, and that was pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, that was pretty cool. Yeah, I didn't get to play against him, but but he was there. Um, I'm, yeah, I I definitely went into the back draw, but don't. <laughs> <laughs> There's actually um, a, an Aussie guy on the Wake Forest roster this year. I think either you or Zach played him in college. Uh, he played for Lander. Um, oh, that's moving cool. up in the world from Division Two, and then they also have, I think their number two player this year actually played for Georgia Gwinnett last year. He played number two for them, so an interesting jump in level, I would say, going from Georgia Gwinnett to uh, a top twenty Power Five school. Yeah, no, that's that's pretty interesting. I I, I think that must have been Zach that played that guy. I I I mostly played the Eric Groiner, and I always lost to him. Ah, okay. Yeah, it was probably Zach then. You, you know, you're in the Division Two landscape. Um, you know, how's how? What are the major differences between D2 and, and D1 for you know listeners? I, let's get Division Two the respect it deserves. Here's your chance. Okay, yeah. So for Division Two, there. I mean, obviously, there's a big difference in level between the top end of Division One and then the rest of Division Two. But I would say, in terms of at least the top. 25 to top 50 schools in division two there's not a huge drop off between them and maybe a mid-major d1 that's competing typically at the i would say the middle level of d1 that's i would say pretty close to a top 25 division two team um but really the biggest 
difference in terms of the level I think comes in the type of players you'll see in the two divisions. A lot of the times division one coaches are looking for, not necessarily looking for, but will be able to get the the bigger, more athletic guys compared to the division two counterparts. And then in a similar way, a lot of those division two players tend to be players that never get that one big weapon that sets them apart from everybody else. I think when you look at the division one guys, a lot of them either have a huge serve, a huge forehand, maybe their movement is elite. Maybe they have tennis IQ that's off the charts. Like they have at least one thing that sets them apart from everybody else. And then in addition to that, those top players sometimes will have two or three of those components, if not more, if they're pro capable players versus in division two, everybody is typically a good tennis player, but they don't necessarily excel at one thing. Like you're not going to see a bunch of guys in division two dropping 130 mile an hour serves on a consistent basis. Like you might see a couple guys do that, but then they'll have some bigger holes in their game compared to a similar type of player at a division one school. So I would really say that that's kind of where the biggest difference comes from is just the, the smaller holes in the game and then the, the weapons on the other end. Yeah, I agree. I, I think a lot of players in Division Two would would testify to this and, and say, you know, if if I had, you know, one more element to the game, I could have could have been competitive in Division One tennis. It's you know, it's it's a, it's guys that just miss that miss that one element to the game, and then the intensity, the difference between you know top D one program and and D two tennis is is quite a lot. You know, it, it's in terms of schedule, practice, you know, who you play with the focus is all all on, mostly on academics mm-hmm. um, in division two, whereas you go to division one and it's, you know, it's athletic, more athletically driven. So then the, the, the gap widens as you go on throughout your career. Would you, would you say that's pretty accurate? I would agree. Yeah. I would, I would almost say that in division one, their, their primary goal once they get to a school like that for tennis is just tennis. Like you're focused full time. Like that's your job. And then at some of those schools, maybe classes a bit more or there's a bit more emphasis on it. But a lot of the times tennis comes first at a lot of division ones. And then for maybe a division three school, it's the opposite where your tennis is kind of the secondary thing you do. But you're really there for school, which is a good mindset to have. And then I would say division two tennis bridges the gap a bit where there's a lot more emphasis on kind of the tennis academics balance that you have throughout your career. But at the it's same a choice, time, right? in Division yeah. Two, I think it's more of a choice. Like, yeah. you know, if you, if you wanted to do academics and play tennis, you can do that. But if you really want to, you know, pursue the tennis, you know, and, you know, put that primary over your academics, you also have that choice, too. Right. You, you described it well, where you have you have the ability to put as much time as you want into the tennis court, just like you would in Division One. But at the same time, you're not going to be necessarily committed to going maybe seven hours a day between weightlifting courts maybe a second workout a second time at the courts like you'll, you'll have that kind of work-life balance between academics and athletics that you don't necessarily have everywhere else yeah and i think you made a great point about the athleticism uh, you you just the, you have to be an athlete to play division one tennis uh, you can get by in division two tennis without being an athlete looking at myself right there it's i think that's just the biggest sole difference is if you if you are not athletic and you're not a, you know a grown athlete coming out of high school you're probably not going to go division one tennis yeah you i remember you mentioned a story to me where you were uh you were on a business job 
and you actually met the UNC Chapel Hill coach for the men's tennis team and got to go out and hit with the team. I remember you kind of describing to me like the difference was the athleticism. Is that does that ring a bell for you? Yeah, it does. Um, there's a funny story that goes along with that too that I, that I'll share. But but yeah, it, it definitely was like you know. I, also, I was older than those guys. You know, I was 24 years old, and some of those guys were were 18, 19. You know, so you would physique just didn't compare. You know, you, they they could have played other sports other than tennis. You know, you would have you wouldn't be surprised if there were you know wide receivers on the football team the way some of them were built and how tall they are. I think the the stature also. You know, it, I was told this even coming out of high school that if you aren't over six foot. You, you're automatically at disadvantage for going to a, a D1 school unless, you know, you're South American, you know, who literally never misses, yep. you, you get picked up. But it, you you have to be over six foot pretty much was was the narrative at the time. I don't know if that's the same way for getting recruited out of the States or that's just a, you know, a foreign thing. I think it's probably still pretty similar. I mean, every time we go play against a Division One school, we're always like, oh, these guys are giants, basically. Like half of them are six foot two and above the guys that are a little shorter maybe they're like five ten five eleven they're still built like tanks so they're the physicality as you said is just massively different being a division one program it's it's very it's a luxury for the coach to be able to to handpick guys you know build your team you know if you if you want that you know argentinian grinder you know literally never misses a ball you you can get him and then you can also get the six foot six german dude with an absolute cannon of a serve and you can sort of build your team around, you know, the, the stereotypical physique that wins at each rubber, each position in the lineup. Mm-hmm. I think that that's a, a luxury that, you know, division two coaches don't really get. Yeah, I would agree. We're when I'm looking around recruiting or doing that stuff, like those are typically bonuses that come along with the player, but it's not necessarily something that, I can just say, oh, because this guy's not over six foot, I'm not going to recruit him. We're looking a little bit more at the tennis side versus just the, well, not that they're doing that as a division one coach, but we put more emphasis on finding the tennis player versus the physicality, because a lot of the times the the physicality is going to translate better at the top of the game for division one, I guess, as we say it, versus the more grindy style of division two, where everybody as a good player makes like a million balls, but doesn't have that put away shot that kind of set them apart and, you know, put them to that next level. Yeah. I, I agree with that, that entirely. Yeah. That was a, that was another thing. I, I it was interesting that I, I thought that one of the, uh, you'd be interesting to get your take. It's a little, it, I guess it's a, a little radical school of thought, but um, like, like college coaches, especially for the public schools, their salaries are are posted online. You know, you can find out, you know, how much a, a coach makes, but that's in any sport. And, you know, you can see the bonus incentives that they get. So, you know, when they get to the, the playoffs at the end of the year, it's like, oh, you win the, your Sweet 16 match, you get 10K bonus to move on to, you know, the last eight. And then you win that to go to the final four, you get 20K bonus. And I was thinking, you know, it's effectively almost gambling with your team selection you know you if you were gambling on a you know a bookie website you'll be you know you pick your six players to win they win you get the payout when you're in that position as a coach you're effectively just gambling on your lineup to win to win money i just thought it was such an interesting concept yeah that is it is very interesting to hear it put that way because uh 
I've never really thought about it that way from my end. Not that I'm making any, you know, bonuses from doing much, but um, it's definitely interesting to kind of hear it put that way where your success is defined by how well you do or how well you put your team together. And I mean, of course, a lot of the coaches, their full focus is to have their team succeed and do well and, you know, make the postseason, maybe win a national championship. But having clear incentives like that is uh, is an interesting way of doing it, more akin to maybe like a, a pro sport versus what you would typically see in uh, an academic setting. Yeah, no, absolutely. And but but that's that's the the, the way of, of sport that you know, revenue and commercial side and the deals that are being done on the commercial side drive so much revenue mm-hmm. and the coaches are a key component of that. Um, so it's, I guess it's just cause and effect. Yeah. No, I just thought it was interesting. You know, I mean, if I bet on, on a team to win and in, you know, the round of 16 and they win, I get the payout, but you know, the coaches, I guess, betting on that game too, with who he chooses to chooses to play. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I did want to go back to your point uh, about the, you know, the difference between, you know, high level D2 and um, mid majors for D1. Uh, your first D1 match is, is tomorrow, I believe. That's right. Yeah, we've got a we've got a Division Two matchup and then a Division One matchup as well. Yeah. So by the time we we speak next on on the pod, we will we'll see, you know, if there's any uh, if you can back up that claim that. We'll be able to see if there's any any uh, truth in the pudding. Yeah, well, it'll be interesting to see. We've actually, I think we've got one matchup on the road, and then later in the week we actually have two matchups. Well, another matchup against a Division One team, but I believe we're playing them twice. So we'll get a we'll get a good bit of experience here over the next couple of days. Yeah, no, it's. Uh, I, I remember the days of, of playing those D one schools. Um, when you know the the team was less established, we we didn't have as many guys. I, we'll get onto that in uh, probably this next Sunday's episode mm-hmm. about the you know the, the structure of of Belmont where we where we both played. Um, we had less guys, so you know we were spread pretty thin when we when we did do the, those double headers and played against those D1 schools. It'll be interesting to to get your perspective on on how things have changed from you know when you're involved in those matches as a player to how they are now as a as a coach yeah for sure that would be a interesting thing to look into sort of wrapping up here as we as we get to the end of this pod but what are your prospects for for this year where where do you think you know your team can go and you know what would define a successful season for you yeah so for us we've we've been pretty successful the last couple years so we've ended up being able to go back to back in our conference tournament and we've been in and out of the the top 25 nationally, kind of like the top 50, pretty consistently for these last couple of years. So we're really hoping to have a similar season to that. Um, I would say it's not make or break that we uh, hit those targets because we're still, you know, building the roster throughout the year. But we're really trying to look to remain competitive in the conference. I think we have a good good chance of that. A lot of the teams have, uh, I would say, picked up level-wise lower in the lineups. So the top end of the the teams hasn't really changed much over the last four or five years, but the the five and sixes from a lot of these schools that we play year in and year out, they've, they've kind of upgraded over the last couple of years. So I'm seeing a lot of competitive matches going forward. And a lot of the time it'll, it'll come down to more of the, the bottom half of teams, which is where 
a lot of matches are decided, but just kind of grinding out long matches, potential three setters. Um, I still think we have a roster that's good enough to be in the top couple teams in the conference, but it's not, it's not guaranteed at all that we can, uh, we can pull that off again for what would hopefully be a third year in a row. You know, when, when we were there, we, we were ranked in that preseason poll that comes out number one, a couple of times and, and, you know, coach Mike always, always played that down, but I, I did notice that, that you are number one again this year. So it's pretty exciting. Yep. yep. It's uh, it comes with the, the territory of, you know, pretty much the team that wins the conference the year before gets the, the number one shout the year after. So we're kind of uh, carrying that on this year, but I think it'll be a very fun, very competitive season. And I, I'm looking forward to seeing how our team kind of does outside of just the conference matches, because those are always a big role, I would say, of a team success, especially in Division Two, where there's there's less chances of making an NCAA tournament without winning your conference. So it's always important, but I'm I'm excited to kind of get into match play here soon and just kind of see how all of our players are doing level-wise and then how our freshmen are going to do going forward. Yeah, is that, is that the most fun part of the job? You know, when you finally get to match days, is, is that what, you know, makes it all worthwhile for you? I would say so, yeah. I'm, I'm always super excited when we get to this time of the year because we get into the either the traveling or the the tennis at home routine. It's just really fun, you know, to get to get up, go out, and even though I'm not technically playing the matches, like be there when the guys are competing against other teams and just be in an atmosphere where competition is happening and not just, you know, preparing for something. Like, it's always fun, you know, having tournaments in the fall, maybe, or individual competitions. But once you get into the spring season, everything kicks up a notch, and it gets super exciting just to kind of compete day in and day out. Yeah, I, I think um, the, the atmosphere was uh, brings back some memories for, for me of playing. You know, we're not, we're not talking about the, you know, the, the pros here where, you know, if you, you can't speak out during points, as a, as a crowd member that, you know, it's some of these atmospheres you go to, especially in big rival games can, can get pretty hostile and they're fun to be a part of. And yeah, it's uh, I think it's going to be an exciting season for you and uh, back to back, you know, can you three peak? I mean, I don't know, but that's what we're shooting for. Yeah. And is there, a, is there a Jersey drop? What are, what are the jerseys looking like this year? Jerseys? Uh, well, we are pretty much rocking uh, Nike clothes, but I'd say the, the main look is the, um, I don't know if people know what the Nike blade polo looks like. It's it's a polo that Federer used to wear, but it is the collarless kind. So it's got the buttons, but no collar. Oh, no, I think, I feel like I remember it different. The jerseys were nice, but when I arrived, it was, here's a couple of t-shirts. Then you got to fish around in a massive cardboard box with some cotton gildan tees for a couple of minutes and see what you got. Yep, the, the old throwback <laughs> year from the years before. But yeah, that's exciting stuff, and um, yeah, we'll uh, we'll check in on Sunday to see how you go. A, a quick note: I played Mars Hill at, at the same day and as part of that doubleheader tomorrow. Um, that's got to bring back some memories of um, our only college doubles win together. That's true. Yeah, our our one doubles win of the season. Granted, the season was a little short. I think we only played four matches together, maybe five, but. Still yeah. technically our one and only win that season. So um, we promised we weren't that bad. It was just Jacob that let us down. Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure <laughs> that Mars Hill match, I did hit a return into your back. Yeah, but you did. The, but the serve was technically like five feet out. I was just kind of half falling in it. So, you know, it wasn't fully my fault, just, you know, mostly my fault. Yeah, all fun and games. 
Um, but we'll uh, we'll let you go. I'll let you get an early night before uh, before you kick off your season tomorrow. Um, we'll be back uh, on Sunday for for more of the same, running down you know more college stuff. I think we'll we'll talk more about you know the the recruitment process. You know how as an high school athlete do you, do you end up on a on a college lineup um, and all fun stuff like that. Um, so tune in uh, on Sunday. Leave us a, a review wherever you get your podcast, whether that be Spotify. Apple, Amazon, or wherever else they may end up. Um, and as always, I've been George Barfoot. And I'm Jacob Andres. And remember, always go around the net post. Uh-huh.